Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week in episode 7 we're going to explore a period of independence and stability in Ned's life. After serving his sentence for the dubious receiving a knowingly stolen horse charge, Ned returns home to Eleven Mile Creek noting some major changes there in his absence. He decides to find work away from the selection and his industrious nature serves him well for quite some time until trouble once again comes his way. As always, there's a little extra material for this episode posted on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and I can be contacted via the contact link there too. My email address is also at that site. If you are new to the Australian History Podcast, I'll encourage you to begin listening to the Kelly Saga at Episode 3, Beverage, first, and then make your way through chronologically so that you get all the relevant background information before we move on here in Episode 7. There is an overview in Episode 2 if you'd like to know about the whole story. For those of you ready for the next instalment, let's get stuck in. And we'll begin by exploring Ned's homecoming after nearly three years in prison. In the previous episode, number six, we noted that Ned returned home from Pentridge Prison to the Eleven Mile Creek selection in February of 1874, and he was saddened by the absence of his elder sister Annie. Annie had died after giving birth to Constable Flood's child, and Flood had showed little remorse or empathy for the family's grief. Indeed, at around the same time, he was still pursuing Alan on a saddle theft charge. One can only imagine the ill will Ned must have felt towards Flood, but this was only to increase when he went to round up the stock he had left behind and learned that Flood had stolen all but one of his thirty horses, the nest egg that he expected to be available to him on his return. But in typical fashion for the selectors in the area, there was to be no police investigation nor any theft charges laid against Flood, It must have been galling to know that the police, many like Flood, were no better than him and his type in their behaviour. Indeed, they were sometimes a great deal worse. When you think of Flood's almost officially condoned seduction of Annie, and yet only the Kellys and their kind got punishment to go with it, while Flood, Hall and their ilk got to keep their jobs and their pensions and go about their lives unharassed. To his credit, though, Ned managed to keep his cool and he considered other options for his future. Young Maggie's new husband, Bill Skilling, and Alan's new husband, George King, were working the Eleven Mile Creek selection, and life there was looking fairly stable. So with his mother well cared for, Ned did not feel the need to stay, and with the police still eager to take any opportunity to return him to jail, Ned must have felt that he was a marked man in greeter anyway. After the guidance of Father O'Hay in prison, Ned's intention to stay out of trouble led him to take up work out of the immediate area, as a tree feller and a bullock driver at a mill owned by Saunders and Rule near Moyu. He seems to have kept a pretty low profile for a while, but on a visit to Beechworth in August later that year, Ned ran into Wild Wright in the Imperial Hotel there. Unlike his father Red Kelly, Ned does not appear to have been much of a drinker. 
but a trip to the pub would have been a typical outing for mill workers in their time off, and he would certainly have been happy to join in. So while he was largely the embodiment of calm and patience up to this point, his fury at Wilde, having been the cause of his three-year prison term, by not warning him that the horse he gave him to use was stolen, meant that a reckoning was inevitable. Seeing the two men squaring off, and aware that a serious brawl was imminent, the publican intervened. He suggested a formal boxing match in the hotel yard to allow them to settle the score and, no doubt, to provide a bit of sport for the locals. So the heat of the moment was dissipated, and yet the need to address honour was to be arranged. The publican provided boxing outfits for them both, and a photo of Ned dressed in that fighting clobber still survives. They fought bare-knuckled. Some sources say Queensbury rules, and others say Old London. But either way, they fought a number of rounds, and with quite similar rules, they allow for three-minute rounds with one minute in between. Not a very generous recovery period, in my view. But if either man falls... He was to get up unassisted within ten seconds, while the other man was to return to his corner. The fight resumes as soon as the fallen man is up and continues until that three-minute round is complete. If one man fails to come to the scratch in the ten seconds allowed, the referee could award in favour of the other man. Anyway, basically it seems that you fought until your opponent gave in or until one of you was completely incapacitated. It all seems pretty brutal but apparently not uncommon at the time. It was suggested that Wild Wright was already an infamous and practised fighter, and he was confident of a win, but Ned was strong and fit from his stone-breaking and his tree-felling, and he was driven by a resentment that had festered for three years. Wild's actions with the postmaster's horse had cost Ned dearly, and this fervour made him virtually unbeatable. It took 20 gruelling rounds, though, before Wilde conceded defeat and then publicly pledging to the victorious Ned his ongoing allegiance and respect. And so the horse theft incident was put behind them both and Ned's fame spread as the district's unofficial boxing champion. This episode greatly enhanced Ned's prestige in the area and helped build up his persona as fearless and unbeatable the persona which would develop larger than life in years to come. The fight was quite famous, and years later Wilde, then a boxer in a travelling tent show, admitted that Ned, quote, gave me the hiding of my life, unquote, on that day. Ned returned to the bush, and his work as an overseer, now at another mill run by Heach and Dockendorf at Kilawarra near Wangaratta. Just to note, there is a bit of confusion amongst the sources about which sawmill he was working at at which time, but both are consistently mentioned, so he was there working even if the exact dates are uncertain. The Kilawarra sawmill had the contract to supply sleepers for the branch line railway, which was under construction to Beechworth. This branch line no longer runs, but the track has been repurposed with a smooth surface and these days makes up part of the wonderful and well-used bicycle rail trails in the region. Later, in interviews with Ned's workmates that were published in regional newspapers from that time, they described him as, quote, warm-hearted but rather impulsive, quiet, very unobtrusive, an excellent axeman and very industrious. 
a loyal man who would do almost anything to serve a friend, unquote. Just as an aside, this unusually sympathetic quote came from a story in the Ovens and Murray Advertiser, which frequently and in no way impartially reported on the Kelly outbreak, and was in general very scathing about the Kellys. The Advertiser was the regional paper in the area from 1855, covering a wide area from Mansfield to Benalla and up into the Murray, encompassing that whole area referred to as Kelly country now. A search on Trove, the National Library of Australia's discovery tool, will bring up a genuine treasure trove of online publications from that era, including those from the Advertiser. According to McMenemy, it was during this period of his life that the rather striking and dapper portrait of a respectable-looking Ned, wearing a double-breasted waistcoat, was taken at Bray's studio in Beechworth. I will post a link on the website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au for you to have a look at. The building that the studio inhabited is still standing on one of Beechworth's main streets, though of course it's renovated by now and no longer a photographic studio. Though many have described Ned in this period as quiet and industrious, quelling trouble from others, he was nonetheless frequently heard complaining of he and his family being hounded and not allowed to make an honest living. If any stock was lost, the police would be first at Allen's door, rousing the household in the middle of the night. Jones tells of Ned and Tom Lloyd riding towards Glenmore in January of 1876, when they saw a horse which had the J.Q. brand of the Quinns. They decided to take it back, unaware that a man named Lydecker had actually bought the mare from the Quinns. Lydecker had reported the horse stolen, and as a result there were warrants issued for Ned and Tom on horse-stealing charges. Tom negotiated with Lydecker and the charges were withdrawn, but somehow Ned's paperwork remained with the police. In July, Ned also presented himself to the police to finally clear up the Lydecker matter, and a number of witnesses testified for him before the matter was dismissed. So we can see that the authorities were quick to act on the charges, but not so quick on the clearing up. It seems that Ned was quite often willing to let the law run its course, especially when he knew he was innocent. There are other incidents recorded where Ned was willing to take responsibility for his actions and face the consequences, when the wrong thing had been done, even ensuring that his brothers faced the music when it was necessary. But he does complain of the continual, focused, and in his mind at least, unwarranted police harassment. By July of 1876, when the railway branch line was complete and the mill work began to dry up, Ned travelled out with a fellow timber worker over the ranges and into Gippsland, but apparently he found the area there too damp and cold and he missed the familiar northeast. So he soon returned to work with Dan in his home country, ploughing for local graziers, driving bullock teams, shearing, fencing and horse breaking undertaking whatever work he could find, really. Ned, Dan and George King also tried their luck prospecting back in the hills around the King Valley. But the local economy had slumped around this time. Gold yields were falling, agricultural yields were poor and various businessmen had gone bankrupt, with the banks foreclosing on a number of farms and businesses nearby. Sydney-bound goods were now being moved via the railway, and as many towns lost their road travellers, income and the towns themselves began to decline. 
With that economic downturn, stock theft in the area increased. And indeed, George King may have had a hand in some of it. The squatters were more keen than ever to worry the troublesome selectors off their land. They lobbied for the police to increase their actions against them, and so they continued to keep a close and suspicious eye on Ned and his family, probably with some good reason at this time. Jim Kelly had been released from jail with a substantial remission and was back at 11 Mile Creek too. Dan, now 15 years old, had taken to riding about the district with the local lads calling themselves the Greeter Mob. The Greeter Mob included Jim and Dan Kelly, Joe Byrne, Steve Hart, Aaron Sherritt, Tom Lloyd, Jack Lloyd and many of the other young men from the district. They dressed, quote, flash, wearing the chin strap of their hats under their noses, their hats tipped forward over their eyes and brightly coloured sashes around their waists, riding around in what was reported as, quote, larrikin fashion. <laughs> Whatever that means. I'm guessing that it's in a similar vein to the more contemporary local hoons meeting up and doing donuts in the back streets of their, in their hotted up cars. Anyway, the mob often hung around the greeter hotels, being rowdy and highly visible, as young men of that age are wont to do. They drew plenty of attention from the local constabulary. And though they were clearly already suspected of being involved in much of the horse theft in the area, they certainly felt no need to keep a low profile. So, from the family history to date, it seems obvious that the Kellys and many of their friends were frequently involved in at least small-scale crime, stock theft and other illegal activities, such as selling of sly grog. Disagreements with some of their neighbours and rivals frequently led to confrontations and sometimes to assaults. Their criminal records show many charges, some leading to acquittal, but some to various sentencing, and hardly a month would go by when one or another member of the clan wasn't presenting themselves at court for some matter. But even with the concerted effort by the police and allowing for some corruption, it is clear that the Kellys were involved in some criminal activity and that the authorities were not able to nab them for all of it. A very frustrating situation, no doubt. And so the desire to set them up and treat them harshly can be understood from their standpoint too. And note that I'm simply saying understand, not excuse, the behaviour of either the Kellys or the authorities. It's an escalating train wreck just waiting to happen really, isn't it? The Kellys and other poor selectors were most certainly targeted, the police always looking to them in the first instance should any crime be committed, but they most certainly were involved in many of the things they were suspected of, whether they got caught or not, as the family has admitted over time. The question remains for some, were the Kellys incorrigible in their criminal behaviour or were they driven to criminal acts by the economic and social circumstances they lived under? They certainly weren't the only family in the area to behave badly. There seems little doubt that the police sent into the area to subdue them were often of poor character. This served to indicate to the locals a police force full of corruption and vice, willing only to do the bidding of the wealthy squatters and to assist in the persecution of the selectors, seemingly not at all interested in fair due process or justice for everyone in the community. Ned later claimed he was driven to eventual aggressive and criminal behaviour by the constant hounding and the vindictive behaviour of their squatter neighbours and of the police who did their bidding. These forces were bent on their removal 
with McBean in particular wanting the whole troublesome clan gone. But really, who wouldn't have wanted that with neighbours like them, always borrowing one's horses? Ned later specifically confesses that he moved from the incidental petty crimes to full-scale profit-making theft, and claims that what tipped the scales for him was the explicit behaviour of the squatters and the police. While even this provocation can never be an acceptable excuse for such criminal behaviour, it at least allows for some understanding of it. If you're going to do the time anyway, maybe you should benefit from the crime. You can just imagine the thinking. The squatters, in turn, blamed the troublesome behaviour of the selectors, particularly the Irish Catholics, on them simply being incorrigible and unchangeable poor-quality criminal classes capable only of antisocial behaviour, the only solution to have them uprooted and removed from decent society, with no chance of redemption or success on the land. So this appears to be a repeat solution, perhaps, of the previous 100 years, of relocating the criminal classes to the end of the world. But weren't they already there? Where can they move them on to after that? The Kellys were petty criminals, and a fair system certainly could have taken them to task. But not until the Kelly outbreak was past history did the authorities admit the double standards when it came to behaviour of the police in pursuing crime in the area, and in addressing fairly all the citizens' concerns. Later inquiries did find the social structure, particularly in the northeast region, to be heavily stacked against those small selectors, leaving them with very little chance of success and no support or recourse for their concerns. Still, rules is rules, and a civilised society must adhere to the social contracts to function well. When Dan was charged in October 1876 with stealing a saddle, Ned decided to remain in Greta, and he took the boys Dan and Jim up to Bullock Creek to work the streams for alluvial gold perhaps in an attempt to keep them out of harm's way. They repaired the old miner's hut there and they set to work digging and panning. Local greeter mob lads, Joe Byrne and Aaron Sherritt, fresh from jail sentences of their own, may have joined them up there too. By February 77, when Dan's charges were heard, the judge expressed surprise that it was brought before him at all. Several witnesses saw the genuine sale and a receipt shown, which proved that Dan had bought the saddle and bridle legitimately, in good faith, so the charges were of course dismissed. But it was yet another incident for the Kellys to chalk up against a vindictive and dishonest police force. On one ride out to the King Valley, Ned found and caught a wild bullock calf, which was later sold for beef. Around the same time, a local squatter named Whitty, the same Whitty we talked about in episode 3, with land near the Quinn's Glenmore run, also lost a calf. It was rumoured that he blamed Ned for taking it. Whitty had considerable power and influence in the area through his wealth, holdings and involvement with the Oxley Shire. Ned was very offended by this accusation. He rode off to the Moyu races for the afternoon and relished the opportunity to confront Whitty, who would no doubt be there. When Ned asked him why he had blamed him for stealing the bull, Whitty explained he had now found his missing bull. Indeed, he had never blamed Ned for its loss at all, though his son-in-law Farrell had. Ned accepted this explanation with some irritation, and then he went on to enjoy the remainder of the race meeting. 
But in a short time he heard rumours that Whitty and Farrell were again blaming him for stealing a mob of cattle this time, and these accusations really began to rankle. Senior police were still irritated by the continuing behaviour of the Quinns, the Lloyds and the Kellys, and by their inability to successfully try them for anything serious or to hound them out of the area. Superintendent Nicholson was sent to speak to the notorious Mrs Kelly himself, and he made the following report. He found her living, quote, in an old wooden hut with a large bark roof. There were no men in the house, only children and two girls about 14 years of age, said to be her daughters. They all appeared to be existing in poverty and squalor. She said her sons were out at work, but did not indicate where, and that their relatives seldom came near them. However, their communications with each other are known to police. Until this gang is rooted out of the neighbourhood, one of the most experienced and successful mounted constables in the district will be required in charge of Greta. I do not think the present arrangements are sufficient. Unquote. Nicholson, like so many of his peers, believed the whole clan had to be removed from the region before they would see any drop in the crime in the area. His plan was to put even more pressure on them, to have them called to justice for even the most paltry charge, what might be called tightening the screws. Given what we already know was going on, one wonders how much harder they could push. Nicholson believed sending as many of the family as possible to prison would take the flashness out of them. So the deliberate persecution of the Kellys and other local selectors now increasingly became the official police plan of action. Recognising perhaps the increased conflict this policy would bring, he then declared Ellen's home a, quote, dangerous place, unquote, and he ordered that it not be visited by any constable acting alone. One can only wonder if the local police had been more reliable and trustworthy officers, whether the escalation of the Kelly outbreak might have been avoided. Indeed, author John Maloney remarked that in giving such a warning, Nicholson was even more aware of the nature of his officers than we might imagine in dealings with the Kelly women in particular. Maloney states, quote, Perhaps the superintendent knew the calibre of his men only too well, for there were growing girls amongst those orphans. Unquote. The police were not the only ones increasing the pressure during this time. Wealthy squatters like Whitty and Burns were constantly impounding stray stock, forcing the owners to find or borrow money to redeem them. Ned was becoming more and more frustrated with what was, in his view, one law for the rich and one for the poor. No one was hounding the squatters for their malicious behaviour. No one was taking the corrupt police to task, including those police who had stolen horses directly from the Kellys. With the squatters manipulating the law and Whitty defaming him all over the district, Ned claimed it was only then that he and George decided to move into the horse-stealing venture on a grand scale, rounding up stock, particularly those from the hated squatters, and driving them over the border into New South Wales to sell. Ned felt that if they were going to be harassed and accused of stealing, they may as well do so, and make some good money too. He later said, quote, I began to think they wanted me to give them something to talk about, unquote. The ante was now upped. George King, Ellen's husband, was apparently a skilled horse thief, but if, it, if he had already been involved in thefts in the area, he had as yet not been detected. 
According to Ned, only now did he join George in a coordinated and large-scale stock theft racket. It seems to be the point, after three good years, that Ned finally gave away the honest life of timber and agricultural work, choosing instead a life undertaking the very crimes that they were already being accused of. It is clear in his later writings that he felt he was forced onto this path by the harassment and injustices accumulating, though of course it is true he had voluntarily opted for it in his youth, working with bushranger Harry Power, so he was certainly no angel. There is generally no smoke without some kind of fire. But for some time at least after prison, he had been working reliably and keeping clear of police trouble himself, perhaps attempting to turn his life around. Witty, along with Burns, were particular examples for Ned of the squatters making life hard for the selectors. In Witty's case, six unfenced roads ran through his land, and he was quick to impound any animals that strayed from the roads, though of course Witty might argue it was a necessity that he conserve his pasture for his own stock, especially in those years of drought. But returning one's neighbour's stock to them rather than having the authorities impounded would have been the neighbourly thing to do. So the stock wars were set to escalate, but the resulting thefts were not limited only to stock belonging to the squatter classes. Ned, George and their accomplices also settled some scores with others, such as Bill Frost, for example, the man who had abandoned the pregnant Ellen a few years before. And they moved large numbers north up into New South Wales for sale. On September 18, 1877, an incident occurred which has become part of the Kelly legend. It began with Ned, unusually, as he was not really much of a drinker, leaving a Benella hotel apparently drunk. He was then immediately arrested, with Constable Fitzpatrick, lately having fostered a friendship with Ned, conveniently on hand to take him to the lock-up and treat him kindly. The following day, as the police prepared to transfer him to the courthouse to answer his drunken disorderly charge, a scuffle broke out. Ned resented the attempt to handcuff him for the short walk to court, especially given the minor nature of the charge, so he angrily bolted into a nearby bootmaker's shop, where four police followed and then grappled with him, attempting to get the handcuffs on. Constable Fitzpatrick grabbed him by the throat, but Constable Lonigan then tried to subdue him by grabbing his wedding tackle, tearing his trousers with the force used. Legend has it that Ned howled in response, Well, Lonigan, I have never shot a man yet, but if I ever do, so help me God, you will be the first. Unquote. Perhaps a quote just a little too convenient for the future story, but one that's retold often. We have no way of knowing if this doubtful comment was truly said, but it certainly entered the Kelly mythology. Either way, the incident ensured that Lonigan was from then on known to Kelly as an unscrupulous dog. <laughs> The local justice of the peace, seeing the fracas from the street, intervened. Ned later claimed that the JP, William McGuinness, told the police that they should be ashamed of themselves for behaving in such a way. Ned agreed he would yield to the handcuffs only if McGuinness was to put them on him, denying the police any respect or authority over him. When this was done, Ned was led to the court. There, Ned claimed that he had not had enough alcohol to be drunk, and that his drink must have been spiked by the publican, under instructions from the police, no doubt. Indeed, unlike his father Red, he was not known to be a big drinker, 
so drunkenness was an unusual charge for him. Despite Ned's suspicions, he was convicted anyway. He was given a small fine on the drunkenness charge and was further fined for resisting arrest, assaulting police and, quote, damaging their clothing. His total debt being £4.6 shillings. It might be assumed that in giving that rather light sentence, the court was perhaps acknowledging the suspect charge and the inflammatory police behaviour. The police, however, looked forward to their next opportunity, and once again the Callies did not keep them waiting long. In September, Dan, Tom Lloyd and some other of the greeter mob went on a spree in a Winton store. There was, of course, a dispute over exactly what occurred, but for Dan, the visit resulted in charges of unlawful entry into a shop, stealing and assault of Morris Goodman and his wife. In the end, only the willful damage charge was actually brought to court. Tom Lloyd was also charged with assault on Mrs Goodman. Indeed, initially he was to be charged with intent to rape, so the situation was very serious. And this does point to the younger boys being pretty wild and antisocial, getting willfully into such a scrape. The newspapers reported no surprise at the charges, seeing as the boys involved were part of that regular gang of ruffians. But the Kellys, as often seems to be the case, alleged it was all fabrication based on the word of a perjurer. The boys would claim that the charges were greatly exaggerated after a dispute with the Goodmans over payment in their store. But taking no chances, they afterwards headed off into the hills to lay low again. Constable Fitzpatrick, however, still feigning friendship with Ned, was soon able to persuade him to bring them in, telling him there was, quote, nothing serious against them. Ned once again agreed to abide by the system, and he did bring Dan in to answer the charges. In October, Dan Kelly, Tom and Jack Lloyd faced trial. The prosecution case was undeniably largely a fabrication, with Goodman later receiving three years for perjury. But the boys were fined and sentenced to three months hard labour at Beechworth Jail, where Ned had been just a few years before. Beechworth, once a prestigious regional capital during the gold rushes, is still today a beautiful town, now a major tourist destination in itself. It's definitely worth a visit for Kelly fans and for gold rush enthusiasts. Its main streetscapes are well-preserved and full of interesting sights related to the Gold Rush era, and to the Kelly story in particular. Though settled in the 1840s, the discovery of gold in the 1850s brought substantial development of services and facilities to town to cater to, and in fact administer, the many thousands of newcomers to the Ovens goldfields. During this boom period, a local council was formed and many of the gracious and quality buildings expanded the planned township and remain today along the wide streets reminiscent of Melbourne's grid. Ford Street, for example, retains much of its old character, with the Tanswell's Commercial Hotel, which hosted Ned and Wild Wright's boxing match out the back, being one of the surviving buildings. The Burke Museum there holds numerous interesting artefacts related to the Kelly story, along with a great deal of other interesting material from Beechworth's gold mining, agricultural and civic history. The museum's name is linked to Robert O'Hara Burke of the famous and fateful Burke and Wills expedition in 1860, the story of which we'll explore in a future Australian Histories podcast episode. Beechworth Cemetery also hosts a sizable Chinese section of around 500 marked stones from the more than 2,000 burials, 
a legacy of the large Chinese population in the area during the gold rush. And of course there are other notable names unrelated to the Kellys in the cemetery as well. The Land Selection Acts of the 1860s had encouraged ex-miners and others, such as the Kellys, to settle permanently in the area to focus on agriculture, and marked a shift from the majority of the income and activity coming from gold mining to agricultural trade. Author Tom Griffith, in his book Beechworth, an Australian country town and its past, noted that in the 1850s, a summer journey or a delivery by dray from Melbourne to Beechworth could take three days and cost £10 a tonne. But in winter, those costs rose to £50 a tonne and could take three weeks or more, the roads being what they were in those days. By the 1870s, the Beechworth Branch Line Railway that Ned was cutting sleepers for while working at the mills linked it to the main Sydney to Melbourne transport route providing some easier and cheaper trade with both Sydney and Melbourne. But with gold no longer bringing in large amounts of money and the townships on the main Melbourne to Sydney rail route now prospering, Beechworth was then just a little too far from the majority of the traffic and began to lose some of its administrative functions, heralding a long period of decline as an administrative and commercial centre by 1880s. Anyway, back to the Kelly story. Having taken Dan in to answer the unsupportable charges, Ned was once again stung by the unfairness and harshness of the justice system, which he had been assured by Fitzpatrick would work reasonably. Fitzpatrick had again proven himself to be a false friend, most likely actively working to entrap the Kellys. There is some contention that at this time Kate Kelly may have begun a relationship with Fitzpatrick, but if so, it seemed Dan's unreasonable sentence probably brought that to an end. Meanwhile, frustrated by the lack of police success in containing the latest surge in stock theft, the squatters formed the North Eastern Stock Protection League, which would offer substantial rewards for conviction of anyone taking members' stock and assisting the return of the property. In those days, the police could claim such rewards, even though, quite frankly, they were already being paid to do that job. <laughs> the lure of this additional reward may have encouraged both the local police to focus more intently on the stock theft and to encourage locals with knowledge to come forward. The Stock Society caused a great deal of resentment and division in the community. The rewards offered made it very attractive for police to vigorously pursue any persons who were holding stolen stock and not necessarily the thief themselves and perhaps directing all their energies this way, rather than undertaking their public duties fairly, with a view to the needs of the whole community. In December, Ned and George headed up to New South Wales, probably with stolen stock to sell, but the renewed police focus on the thefts may have increased the risks for them in Victoria, and it seems that after this trip, George did not return to Greta, although Alan was by now pregnant with their third child. In 1878, over the summer, Ned had built his mother a new home near the old hut, but on the opposite side of the creek. Alan would be comfortable for the arrival of her new baby, but trouble would soon again be on their doorstep. The new year would spiral into tragedy, which would change the family and the people of Victoria forever. While all this was occurring in the northeast of the state, startling political machinations were taking place in Melbourne at this time. 
which we can see now probably went into the mix to help create the perfect storm, as they say. On May 21, 1877, Graham Berry had become Victoria's Premier. Victoria was about to experience great upheaval under the Berry government, and some of the ripple effects may well have had some bearing on the police and judicial behaviour over the next couple of years. Berry's government was battling a hostile upper house, and by the year's end they were refusing to grant his government supply. In a very aggressive move, on the 8th of January 1878, in an effort to balance the Victorian budget, Berry sacked hundreds of public servants, including most of the judiciary, and he threatened to disband the police department. This day became known as Black Wednesday. Black Wednesday was followed by Black Thursday on the 24th, and all areas of the administration were in shock. Some historians speculate this left many in the police force fearful of future government cuts. No officer felt secure, and many were keen to try and prove their worth, hoping to be amongst those remaining employed in any potentially reduced force. Fitzpatrick, with his personal problems reflecting badly, and his tendency to drink, as well as questionable associations with the Kellys, may have been keener than most to prove himself. He was soon to take action which he hoped would impress his superiors in the force. Either that, or he was still keen to rekindle a relationship with Kate Kelly, and could not long keep away from the Eleven Mile Creek selection. By March, following the recovery of some stolen stock, Ned was finally identified as one of the probable thieves, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Soon after, warrants were also issued for Dan and for John Lloyd Jr. Fitzpatrick decided he should serve those warrants himself. So we'll finish episode 7 at this point. It's been a long one this week. After three years working as a labourer and leading a fairly normal and mostly uneventful life, Ned had finally tired of the constant police and squatter harassment and had chosen to move full tilt into large-scale stock theft. The younger boys were in ever more trouble, George King had deserted Alan, and the whole family and their prospects seemed to be coming off the rails. With the police determined to set them up and hound them out, with the prospect of additional reward from the local stock society should they convict the Kellys, it seems like they were all close to a dangerous tipping point. Next episode, we're going to hear about the events that occurred which mark the beginning of the Kelly outbreak, as it's known, the Fitzpatrick incident, which escalated them into the criminal big league. I look forward to exploring those events with you in a fortnight. Remember to check for additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's histories with an I-E-S. There's also contact details on that webpage and my email address there if you'd like to send any thoughts and comments through. So take care now and enjoy pondering the history all around you. I look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.